Let's open our Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to read the first 28 verses of this chapter. But I will make reference to the latter part of the chapter in the sermon as well. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, or Peter, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, that am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God... I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believed. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say among some among you, that there is no resurrection of the dead. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put 
all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. We read the word of God that far this morning. We consider, too, the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 17 this morning, in the back of the Psalter on page 10. What doth the resurrection of Christ profit us? First, by his resurrection he has overcome death, that he might make us partakers of that righteousness which he had purchased for us by his death. Secondly, we are also by his power raised up to a new life. And lastly, the resurrection of Christ is a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we turn our attention to the fifth article of the Apostles' Creed, which summarizes our Christian faith. In the fifth article of the Creed, we confess regarding our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for our sins on the cross, that on the third day he rose again from the dead. That's Article 5 of our Creed. God's only begotten Son not only came down to the earth and became a man, he not only humbled himself and took the form of a servant, he not only humiliated himself to the suffering of death, even the death of the cross, and was buried and descended into hell so that he might save us from our sins, but then he also rose from the dead. He entered into what we call in theology the state of exaltation, which would carry him up higher and higher and higher into the highest place of the highest heaven, where he would ultimately sit down at the right hand of God the Father. The Apostles' Creed lists for us the steps of the exaltation of Christ after the steps of his humiliation. After telling us that Christ became a man and suffered and died and was buried and descended into hell, the Apostles' Creed goes on to teach us that he rose from the dead on the first day, step one, on the third day rather, then he ascended into heaven, then he sat at the right hand of God, and finally he will come again to judge the living and the dead. This morning, we turn our attention to the first step of his exaltation, his resurrection from the dead on the third day after he died. 
We consider this morning the glorious wonder of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is at the very heart of the Christian gospel and the Christian faith. And without the resurrection of Christ, we have no hope in this world. And we are, as the Apostle said to the Corinthians, of all men, most miserable. But we know that Christ has risen from the dead. And so this morning we hear the glorious comfort of the gospel, of that truth. I call your attention to this theme, believing the resurrection of Christ. Notice, first of all, his victory over death. Notice, secondly, his rich gifts for us now. And notice, finally, his promise to raise us up. The victory of Jesus Christ over death is mentioned in the Catechism when it says that by his resurrection, he overcame death. We would do well to pause right there and focus on that opening statement of the Catechism for a while. By his resurrection, he overcame death. That is a statement of the victory of Christ over death, the great enemy, the last enemy of death. Christ has won the victory. But that statement of Christ winning the victory over death presupposes the catastrophe that happened in the beginning of history, the catastrophe of the fall of man into sin, which unleashed into the world the powers of death and hell. The first man who appeared on the face of this earth did not emerge after millions and millions of years of evolution. After millions of years of living and dying, living and dying. But the first man appeared on the earth in the very beginning of history when God created him out of the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The Apostle Paul believed that and he taught that in the chapter that we read. The first man, Adam, was a living soul. He was made of the earth, of the dust of the earth, and he was made earthy. God made the first man out of dust, out of the earth, as a man of the earth, to live on the earth, suited to the earth, adapted to the earth. Adam was a man who had a physical body as well as a spiritual soul. He was a man of flesh and blood like you and me. And Adam was also a righteous man. He had original righteousness. He was made righteous. He was made good by God in his own image and likeness. And God took Adam and placed him in the Garden of Eden as the head of the whole human race so that when Adam would decide what to do morally, that would affect the whole human race. And God said to Adam, You may eat the fruit of all of the trees in the Garden of Eden, but there is one tree in the middle of the garden that you must not eat the fruit of it. And if you eat the fruit of that tree, in that very day you will surely die. 
And in you, the whole human race will also die. And as we know, Adam did not obey God. But Adam gave heed to Eve, who gave heed to the devil, and took the forbidden fruit and ate it. And in that moment, when he sunk his teeth into that fruit, the powers of sin and death were unleashed into the world as a great flood of destruction. It was a blatant act of gross disobedience to God, who had specifically said, don't do that. But then he did that very thing that he was not to do. And therefore, God laid the curse of death upon the whole creation. The apostle writes of that in the chapter that we read in verse 21, when he says, For since by man came death, in verse 22, For as in Adam all die, by man came death. God did not create death. Death is not a natural force in the creation. By man came death. Man brought death into the world, both physical and spiritual death. Because of the fall of Adam into sin, we were deprived of that original righteousness. We were deprived of that original life. We were deprived of all hope. So that each one of us came into the world as a son or daughter of Adam. Which means we came into the world with no righteousness of our own. We came into the world with no life in ourselves. We came into the world with absolutely no hope in Adam. We are physical creatures of flesh and blood made of the dust And soon we return to the dust. Our bodies will decay and decompose and rot in the grave. But God prophesied in the Old Testament that he would raise up a Savior. He would raise up a Messiah. And through Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8, God prophesied that through this coming Messiah, he will swallow up death in victory. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces. God fulfilled this prophecy when he sent his only begotten Son into the world in the midst of time. He sent his Son into the world to swallow up death in victory. He sent his son into the world to save all those whom he had given to him out of the fallen human race. And so Jesus appeared in the midst of the world. Jesus was born into the world of a woman, born a man like you and me, a man of body and soul, of flesh and blood, of the earth, earthy, made of the same earthly substance that our bodies are made of, And he lived on the earth. He walked on the earth. He lived among the nation of the Jews for 33 years. But Jesus was an extraordinary man, unlike other men, because he did extraordinary signs and wonders, miracles. He was a man who never did anything amiss, 
who never did anything that was worthy of rebuke. He never did anything that could be pointed out in him that was a fault. And he was a man who claimed to be nothing less than the Son of God, equal with God, the only begotten of the Father. But this Jesus, a man among men, but an extraordinary man, laying claims to equality with God, was despised and rejected of men. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. He came unto his own, and his own rejected him, condemned him, hated him, despised him, and unjustly sentenced him to the awful, cruel death of the cross. There he was nailed. There he suffered. There he shed his precious life blood. And on the cross, in the midst of a terrible darkness, he cried out in agony, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he gave up the ghost. He died. And he was taken down from the cross. He was wrapped up in linen cloths and spices And he was laid in a sepulcher which was sealed with a great stone. And there he lay. What has become of this who we thought was the Messiah? What has become of him? Whom we thought was the fulfillment of the prophecies of old. Whom we thought was God's Christ. Whom we thought had come into the world to swallow up death in victory. What has become of him? Has he, in fact, been swallowed up by death like all other men before him and like all men after him? Has he, in fact, been overwhelmed, overcome, and defeated by death? Is death, in fact, after all, such an eradicable force in nature That even Jesus succumbed to it. That even Jesus, this extraordinary man of signs and wonders, of sinless righteousness, of claiming to be the Son of God, was swallowed into the deep pit of death, never to escape. If there is no resurrection of the dead, Paul writes to the Corinthians, then Christ himself is not risen. And if Christ is not risen from the dead, then my preaching is vain. And I say the same to you this morning. If there is no such thing as resurrection from the dead, then Christ did not rise from the dead, no matter what anybody says. And if Christ did not rise from the dead, then my preaching is vain. And if my preaching is vain, your faith is vain. And if your faith is vain, then your life is vain. You are still in your sins, and you have no hope. And as Christians, who give your whole life to the following of Jesus, you are of all men most miserable. And I am too. First Corinthians 15, verse 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead. 
But no, Christ is risen from the dead. And he has become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. That is not my word. That is the word of God. That is not Paul's opinion. That is the very word, the infallible, inspired, unassailable word of Jesus Christ, the living Lord himself. Christ is risen from the dead. The Bible tells us so. The Bible teaches us that Jesus who died arose from the dead on the third day, and he lives forevermore. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell the story in which they capture the eyewitness testimony of those who saw these things. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell us the story of the discovery of the empty tomb and the grave clothes of Jesus lying there with no Jesus in them. And they tell us the story of the testimony of angelic messengers from heaven who said, He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. And they tell us about glorious appearances of Jesus to several of his disciples and to a group of women. But already, long before the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to tell that story and to write it down infallibly in the sacred scriptures, I say long before that, the Holy Spirit moved these apostles to preach the glorious gospel of the resurrection far and wide. The Holy Spirit raised up the apostles immediately after the event of the resurrection took place. There were not several decades or centuries that passed before a supposed myth of the resurrection developed. But immediately after the historical event took place, the apostles began to preach it. They began in Jerusalem to preach that this Jesus, who died on that cross, has risen from the dead. We've seen him. And they began to preach that throughout Samaria and throughout Syria and into Antioch. And Paul began to preach that on his missionary journeys everywhere that he went. And they preached this, mind you, at the risk of their lives. At the risk of being captured, imprisoned, and put to death, they preached. They stood up and preached from the housetops that Jesus, who died, has risen again. He lives. He lives. Paul went everywhere preaching that. He went to Cyprus. He went to Antioch. He went to Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe on his first missionary journey. He went to the Jews first and also to the Greeks. And everywhere he went, he preached, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. He died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And he rose again on the third day. 
And sometimes they shoved him out of the synagogue. Sometimes they showed him the exit to the town and they threw stones at him and left him for dead. But he went on preaching. Jesus who died is risen from the dead. Jesus who died is alive. And he issued everywhere he went the promise of the gospel that whosoever believes in Christ who died and rose again, whosoever with a true and sincere heart puts his trust in Christ will be saved. Paul preached that also in the city of Corinth, in the nation of Greece, on his second missionary journey. And through the preaching of the gospel in Corinth, a church was formed of believers. But after Paul left and continued on his missionary journeys, he heard reports that there were some in Corinth who doubted the resurrection of Jesus. There were some there who doubted it because they were still infected with the poison of Greek philosophy, which claimed there is no such thing as resurrection from the dead. And so they doubted this aspect of Paul's message, that Jesus arose from the dead. So Paul wrote this part of his first epistle to the Corinthians to address that portion of the congregation. And he sets before them what he no doubt set before them before, the infallible proofs of the resurrection of Christ. He makes the case for the resurrection of Jesus by citing the hundreds and hundreds of people who saw him after his death, alive. He points out the fact that Cephas, or Peter, saw him. And so did the other disciples. He points out the fact that more than 500 people saw him all at once, at the very same time. Perhaps this was a congregation of Christians who were gathered together on the Sabbath day for worship. 500 of them in one place at one time, and Jesus evidently appeared to them, and they saw him, and Paul says, and the majority of that 500, they're still alive. You can go to them. You can seek them out. You can talk to them. You can hear their testimony. And you can see how the testimony of those 500 corroborates. There's no contradiction in their testimony. They all saw the same thing. They saw Jesus alive after his death. He points out that James saw Jesus. James, not the apostle, but James who was the half-brother of Jesus. The James who throughout the life of Jesus did not believe in him, who did not believe in his brother, who did not believe that Jesus was the Christ. He says, even James saw him. And then he says at last, I saw him. I saw him with my own eyes. And remember, Paul was a Pharisee. Paul was a persecutor of the church. He says, I am the least of all the apostles because I persecuted the followers of Jesus. I hated them. I despised them. I was imprisoning them. I was trying to kill them. But then I saw him alive. 
with my own eyes. And so the Apostle says, Make no mistake, brothers and sisters in Christ, our Lord Jesus arose from the dead on the third day, as he said. And the Apostle is at pains to demonstrate to all the Christians throughout the churches that the great fact of the resurrection of Christ proves that he is exactly who he said he was. Jesus is the Son of God, sent into the world to be the Savior of the world, to swallow up death and victory, and to bring forgiveness of sins. Paul opens his great epistle to the Romans this way. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power when he arose from the dead. Now the whole world has to come to grips with this. Jesus is the Son of God. What will you do with him? He opens his epistle to the Galatians this way, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. The Heidelberg Catechism teaches us that the Lord Jesus Christ overcame death. Let that sink into your mind and into your soul. He overcame death. He has won the victory over death. Death did not swallow him. He swallowed death, and he lives. What then does this mean for us, and how does this profit us, the Catechism asks. In the first place, the resurrection of Jesus Christ profits us in this way, that he now lives to make us partakers of the righteousness which he has obtained for us by his death. We saw that in the beginning God made one man, Adam, and he was righteous. The first man was righteous in himself and of himself. He was perfectly aligned with the will of God. But when he fell into sin, he became unrighteous. He became depraved. He became corrupt. And the apostle teaches in Romans 5 that by one man, Adam, sin entered into the world and death by sin. By one man, many became sinners. Through the sin, through the unrighteous decision of one man, the whole human race became wicked, corrupt, and ungodly. We lost that original righteousness. We became utterly deprived of righteousness so that we come into this world not righteous, but unrighteous. We were born already when we were little babies. In ourselves, we had no righteousness. 
In ourselves, we were guilty of the sin of Adam and in ourselves worthy of condemnation. Our baptism form points that out. When we bring our children for baptism, we confess that also our little ones are guilty of the sin of Adam just like we are by nature and worthy of condemnation. And every time we sin in our lives, we add to that worthiness of condemnation. Every sin that we commit, we make ourselves unrighteous and worthy of condemnation, worthy of judgment, worthy of punishment in hell for all eternity. And if there is no such thing as resurrection from the dead, then you have to see that that means that Jesus did not rise from the dead. And if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then that means that Jesus did not obtain righteousness for you. It means Jesus has nothing for you, and he has nothing for me. It means Jesus is just a man, and all that he can do is try to show us the best way to live. All he can be for us is a good example. If there is no resurrection of the dead, but now is Christ risen from the dead, Paul says. And if you need evidence of that, he points us again to Peter, to James, to himself, to the 500. The scriptures point us to the women who went to the tomb that Sunday morning, questioning among themselves, who is going to roll away the stone from the door of the sepulcher when we get there? It's a huge, heavy stone. But when they arrived, they saw that the stone was already rolled away. The angel of the Lord sitting on that stone. And inside the tomb, two angels sent from God testifying to them, He is not here. He is not here. For He is risen. Just as He said. He's risen. He's alive. Therefore, the death of Christ was unlike the death of every other person who has ever died. The death of Christ accomplished something. The death of Christ was a willing, voluntary sacrifice of love of the only begotten Son of God in human flesh who did not deserve to die in himself. And therefore, the death of Christ accomplished, earned, obtained righteousness. Not only for himself but also for us. He obtained righteousness by his death. By his death, he made satisfaction to the justice of God. He made payment to the justice of God for the debt of our sin that we could never pay. He suffered the punishment that we could never endure. And he suffered it to the very end. And therefore, he obtained righteousness for us. He obtained the forgiveness of sins for us. He obtained everlasting redemption for us. And when God raised him up from the dead, God was saying to us, He did it. He did it. As one theologian put it, the resurrection was God's amen to Jesus's, It is finished. Jesus said, It is finished on the cross. In the resurrection, God said, Amen. It is finished. 
And God declared by raising up Jesus from the dead, you, my people, are righteous. You are righteous in him. In Christ, I forgive all your sins. I take them all away and cast them far away. And I impute to you the righteousness of Jesus. The Apostle writes in Romans 5, verse 19, As by one man, Adam, as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one, Christ, shall many be made righteousness. Righteous, not by our obedience, but by his obedience. And in Romans 4, he says, This righteousness of Christ shall be imputed to us if we believe on him that raised him from the dead, who raised up Jesus, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Do you believe? in the crucified and risen Christ? Do you believe not only the doctrine that I am preaching this morning in your mind, but do you believe in the person whom I am preaching in your heart? Do you believe in this person, the Son of God, who became man and died and was raised from the dead? Do you believe in God who raised him from the dead? If you believe in him, then his righteousness is imputed to you. That's the first benefit. In the second place, Christ through his resurrection bestows upon us the rich gift of a new life. A totally new life. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything for us. Everything. Once again, we go back to the first man, Adam, and we see that Adam was created a living soul. He was not just a living body. He was not just a living body of flesh and blood who was able to eat and drink and sleep and breathe and walk and talk in the garden, but he was a living soul was created in a relationship with God, and that was his true life. His true life was that he was in a relationship of fellowship and friendship with God, a covenant. He was God's friend, and he lived with God in the garden in happiness. But when he chose to eat the forbidden fruit and fell into sin, he lost that life. He cast it away. He chose to walk with the devil instead. He chose to walk in the darkness instead. And he led the whole human race into that path of darkness and following of the devil. So that we were born into this world not alive, but dead. When a child is born, we rejoice and give thanks for the new life that we see which is a gift from God and very precious. But spiritually, what we must see is that that new life is dead, spiritually. Spiritually dead. Except it be born again. We come into this world dead, depraved, corrupt. 
And that means that we are not able to live with God in a relationship of fellowship by nature. We are not able to walk with God and talk with God and love God and rejoice in God and obey God and fear God and serve Him and keep His commandments. We're not able to dwell with Him. We're only able to follow Satan. We're only able to walk in the paths of sin. But the resurrection of Christ has changed everything. The resurrection of Christ, which has been witnessed by hundreds and hundreds of people as a fact of history, bestows upon us now in our present life the gift of new life. We call it regeneration. We call it being quickened together with Christ. We call it conversion and sanctification. When God raised up Jesus from the dead, he raised us up as well, so that now we live a new life. If you believe in your heart, truly and sincerely, the fact that Christ arose from the dead, if you really, truly, sincerely believe that, It changes everything in your life. Everything. After all, if you know, if you know that Jesus lives, then that faith that you have, that faith is itself the gift of Jesus to you. That faith is itself the fruit of of that new life that he has planted in your heart, and that faith that says, I know my Savior lives, produces a new life. You don't live like you used to live. You live a new life. A life of radical love and devotion to God. A life of radical love for your neighbor. A life of radical Uprooting of sin out of our life, fleeing from sin, fighting against sin, and striving to keep all God's commandments. And you live that life of following Jesus no matter what. Even in the midst of a society that increasingly denies his resurrection, that increasingly teaches atheism and nihilism and agnosticism, and all kinds of other isms that deny the gospel. Even in a society that increasingly says, you may not teach that, you may not believe that, you may not live that way. Even in a society which says, you're going to go to jail if you believe that and preach that. Even then, when the taxes go up for being a Christian, when there are greater fines when privileges are taken away from Christian churches and schools and other institutions, even then, if you really believe that Jesus is alive, king, ruling over all things, you follow him all the way to the end. That's what I mean when I say it changes everything. And we need to hear that. I know I need to hear that. And I assume you need to hear that as well, because unless you are an ostrich with your head in the ground, 
If you're watching the developments in our society today, you see that these are not hypothetical things. But if you believe in the midst of these dark days of unbelief that Jesus is alive, then you follow him to the very end. In Romans 6, verse 4, Paul said, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Colossians 3, verse 1, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. What makes a person willing to give his whole life to the service of following Jesus rather than following his own desires? The world says, you've got one life to live. Eat, drink, and be merry. The gospel says, Jesus is alive. Follow him. What makes a person follow him. It's gratitude, isn't it? Because if I believe that Jesus lives and he arose for me, and now he gives to me the sure pledge and promise that just as he arose from the dead, so also I will arise from the dead on the last day. And I grasp hold of that promise that I want to live for him. And I am set free to live without fear of death, without fear of persecution, without fear of suffering, without fear of martyrdom, without fear of anything, without fear of what man can do unto me. That's how the martyrs made it through the stake and the fires, and the smoke that killed them. How? Because they knew that Jesus lives. They're not afraid to die. They're not afraid of anything. And that's what we conclude with this morning, the pledge, the promise. Paul says, Now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, not all of us at once, but every man in his own order, every person at his own time, you'll have your time and I'll have my time. Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. Christ did something that Adam could never have done. Adam was... The first man, but he was only a man. He was a man of flesh and blood, of body and soul. He was of the earth earthy. He was made of the earth for the earth to live on the earth. But Christ, Paul says, he is the Lord from heaven. He is the last Adam, the second Adam, the son of man and the son of God come down from heaven to the earth. And he has accomplished something Adam could never have done. Through his death and resurrection, 
He has obtained for us what he obtained for himself. A higher, heavenly, immortal life in body and soul. Did not Jesus arise from the dead with an immortal and heavenly body? He arose from the dead not in his old body. He did not return simply to his old body the way it was. But his old body was transformed in the resurrection so that he arose not out of the grave, but through the grave. He arose into a higher form of human life. Heavenly, immortal life. A life that can never be lost. A life that can never die. A life of unending strength and power and beauty and glory. That's the resurrection. That's our hope for the future. The Lord Jesus promises that when he comes again, he will raise our bodies out of the dust of the ground and transform our bodies by a miracle so that we will be like his body and we will live with him forever. Let's conclude with these words from 1 Corinthians 15. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Not this body the way it is. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. And we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption. And this mortal shall have put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. Amen. Our Father, which art in heaven, what a glorious gospel thou hast given to us, passed down through many centuries, preserved in the scriptures, and still proclaimed today. We give thanks to thee for the Savior Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent, who has died for our sins and risen from the dead the third day. May our faith fasten upon him, And may we find hope in life and in death in Christ alone, in whose name we pray, amen.